With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Drop Step. Much like last episode, we are taking a break from the rigmarole of the NBA season, regular season grind. And we've got a very special guest on today. We've got the author of Spaced Out. I'm going to read the full title, Spaced Out, How the NBA's Three-Point Revolution Changed Everything You Thought You Knew About Basketball. We've got Mike Prader with us today, and I'm really excited to be chatting to him because it's been a year since the book was released. And personally, Mike, watching the NBA, I I think about the term that you coined, spaced out native, more than ever today. Oh yeah, well I'm glad to hear that. Thank you for the kind words. Uh, I'm actually curious what you what you think that term means and why you hear it more often. What why you see it? You know, what do you think that means? Wow, I, I like it turning it straight back. So I see it. I, I think when I originally popped up to you in the message, I pointed out Victor Wembanyama and I pointed out Chet Holmgren coming into the league and. I think we might have to think of a new term other than unicorn when you can have two mm. play their rookie season at the same time. I think this is just a new archetype, but essentially what you profile in the book is amongst many other things, positionless basketball players of all shapes and sizes being taught all sorts of skills. And I think that we've sort of had a true encapsulation of that with Chet entering the league with Wemby entering the league, but they're just sort of the two most obvious points. Uh, I think that you look around the league now and you just see all these wonderful different, not archetypes, but players that stand out from each other. And I think that um, it's it's sort of a hodgepodge of talent in different bodies in a way that it's it's never really been before. Yeah, no, I, I think that that makes sense. You know, uh, Victor Wembeyama hated, said he didn't like the unicorn term earlier this week for, I think, the same reason. I mean, if they're all unicorns, then none of them are unicorns. You know, it sort of goes against the spirit of the word. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting you use the word positionless because, um, you know, in the chapter that I talk about positions, I actually make the point that I think that term sort of often obscures what's really going on rather than illuminates you know i think it's a very popular term but i don't know to me it sort of illustrates this idea that like nobody knows where they're supposed to be everybody's just a generalist and i don't really think that that's how it actually plays out what i think is interesting is that what's happened i think is it's more positionally fluid which is a little bit more of a mouthful um so i understand why it hasn't really picked up as like kind of a common term but there is a shape on every possession, you know, every possession kind of has a flow, you know, players are playing off each other. What's different is that the players occupying the different spots on the floor to create that five man shape are changing are different. 
are in different spots. You know, you look at Wembenyama and Chet, they're not just perimeter-oriented seven-footers. You know, they mm-hmm. can play in the slots that you would think in the past may go just to big men. They can also play in the slots that are meant for small players. And you can see the reverse of that sometimes as well, you know, with someone like a Jeremy Sohan, who is playing a guard spot, but also kind of occupies a lot of the spots that you would think are for big men. You know, you see a lot of guards now sort of sneaking along the baseline. That's kind of, again, the opposite. You can't have one without the other. And so what I think is really, when we say, when I say space out native, what I think of is just a player who has a understanding of the spatial constraints of the court, the shape of the entire game beyond just what their role is. They sort of have an intuitive understanding of how the five players need to align at certain points. You know, and that I think that spatial awareness is really what's changed about the game once you opened it up, is that every single player kind of knows sort of where the where the all the chess pieces are at all times mm-hmm. and know how to operate in those spaces uh, and are able to visualize exactly how the game kind of moves. In a lot of ways, you know, I only think of this because you're across the pond. It's a very soccer-esque way of thinking about about the field. I think that's really come to come to bear in the NBA over the last 10 years as the three-point line has basically spread the game out. More people, when we say space out native, to me, they're sort of just seeing the patterns, not just in where they are as from their own like kind of rigid, you're a big man, you stand here, you're a guard, you stand here, but you kind of know it's an evolving sort of fluid shape of five people at once and five defenders at once that is just much more universal now than it ever has been. And to your point, it's led to a lot of different types of players succeeding body-wise, skill-wise, height-wise, in a way that you didn't really see in the past. Yeah, I think there's a lovely term just to touch on the football point quickly. In German football, we have a position called a Raumdeuter, which means space investigator. <laughs> and I think that if you, yeah, it's fantastic, right? Is that what, like, uh, was that where, where do they play in the field? Is that like the number six? Is that like kind of a midfield uh, position or is it more so of like. That was coined for Thomas Muller, basically. Ah, interesting. Okay. So sort of your nine and a half, 10, the guy that just seems to find the space that no one else seems to find just interprets it very differently and i think that that's something that you're really alluding to here and as well as sort of interpreting that space at a much higher level i think just the redistribution of size and skill across the positions i think Mm -hmm. that you touched on that really nicely when you looked at the 2007 mavericks warriors series where there were so many misconceptions about the Warriors. It was, oh, you know, they're doing this, they're positionless. It's it's all very funky. But really, they had all the assets, all the, if you picture it, like skill points on a video game. Yeah, exactly. They had the total rebounding. They had the total athleticism. They had the total shooting. It's just, it was moved around in different positions. And I think that that's something that's very prevalent in today's game. And I think if we're going to stick to Spaced Out Native, towards the second half of your book, you break down in a really pleasing way how NBA players have had to change so many facets of their game in the last 10 to 15, 20 years. I I think of the chapter on Joe Ingalls, on shooting, Mm, mm -hmm. the the final chapter on defending. Um, Since since reading the book, I've never looked at players' feet more. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it it really is amazing how, I mean, the the simple way to put it, sorry to cut off your question, but I I think it's... You talk about footwork. I mean, the thing I always just try to tell people, I almost think that we have people talking about this transformation, miss the forest through the trees a little bit. You take a playing surface and you double its size. You're going to move on it differently if you don't add any more players. I mean, you play pick, if you play pickup basketball, what is what is more exhausting to play, two on two or five on five? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the question answers itself, right? It, right. Yeah. So you have to move differently in order to cover that space. You have to be in, responsible for so many different places, and so it would be weird if it didn't affect the way players moved, if it didn't affect the way players had to make decisions, if it didn't affect the way they saw the space. You know, and I, I think in focusing so much on wow, they're shooting a lot of threes. I think we miss that element. And one of my goals in this book was to illustrate in kind of subtle and obvious ways, 
just what it means to play on a surface is twice as big if you're a player. What skills do you need more of? What skills do you need less of? How do you train your body? And I love my favorite two chapters to write were uh, the shooting chapter and the one that you didn't mention among the last one, which is sort of the step rhythm chapter, the where you talk about right. the euro step and all that. And I just think those are such small ways that you don't really appreciate having to what how do you shoot a lot of threes i mean you sort of take for granted that like it's hard to generate power to shoot the ball from 27 feet away accurately Mm -hmm. you know you sort of take you you sort of lose sight of and and if you have to do that so much quicker now that really changes a lot of even how you think of shooting and so the joe ingles example i use is sort of how his shot is kind of quiet gradually over the course of his career went from sort of this catapult like slow motion thing into a much more fluid you know he doesn't sometimes he doesn't even use dip the ball all the way you know and how it requires reframing your body reframing how you think of shooting form in order to just get those off um and then the stepping thing it's just a matter of i use Giannis as a as a key example but also james harden kind of in the inverse if you're at this point where you need to move more efficiently across larger space it starts to become a lot more about how do you program your gather steps and everything that looks like a travel now is really what it is is i think players finally realizing that wait a minute i have two steps they don't there's no rule about what direction those steps go Mm -hmm. i can all that matters is that i don't take a third step and that changes a lot of how i can navigate space to go to the basket or to make plays or, to, or get, even to give me more time to make a decision. And so that, that really, all of that is downstream from I've got more space to use. What do I do with it? And I, I think that was a, I'm glad you enjoyed that part. Cause that was something that I think is sort of lost a little bit in the discussion. Mm. And the other chapter that I really loved, and I think it's interesting that you sort of mentioned what skills do we need to develop with the evolutions of the court, but also what skills sort of have more room to develop because of the environment that we're playing in now. Uh, I think you pay a lovely backhanded compliment. It might not have been intended that way to Taylor Horton Tucker. (laughs) Yes. Brilliant. You know, you you break down a play uh, at the very start of the chapter. You're basically pitching it as, this could be Magic Johnson, this could be LeBron James, and it turns out to be THT. Uh, I I think that really summed up very nicely how far the game has come in the last decade or two decades, I suppose. Yeah, you're talking about uh, passing in particular. This was a play, I think, at the end of the 2021 season where he's still with Mm -hmm. the Lakers and they're playing the Knicks. It's kind of a forgettable game. Uh, And yeah, he sort of slings this pass out to, I want to say it was... Who was the shooter? It was um, Wayne Ellington. It was some shooter, anonymous shooter. Someone on the Lakers. I'm blanking on exactly who who it was. Um, Someone that is definitely not on the team anymore. Not, not, you know, super. And it was against the Knicks. And, I mean, he's basically, like, jumping out of bounds and flinging this pass that's on target. And you sort of don't really appreciate, like, nobody did that stuff before and yet this is just like a typical pass now and it's it's made by this great combination of well if there's more space there's more places for the ball to go very Mm -hmm. simple thought there and the combination of if you're on a larger space and you're thinking the game in this spaced out native way where it's it's a kind of a relationship between five different people at once and five defenders at once and the dominoes fall when it turns into five on four four on three you kind of break it down into those ways kind of like how in soccer you had the triangles the triangle passing it's it's a very similar concept you start to just notice these relationships between if i go here the defender goes here and those build up combined with the fact that we can all study video of ourselves doing this at a rate that's like astronomically higher than it was 20 years ago and just those passes just come to players much easier. And, you know, it, it, almost everybody is a better passer now than they were before. And also the people who are really good are so much better than the experts were before just because they have this 
understanding and obviousness of the relationships between the players that was just harder to gauge when they were so much further together. You know, and mm. I, I think, yeah, I, it was a little bit of a backhanded compliment, but, you know, he was just the vessel. I mean, he he's not a bad passer. He's a, he can do, make some passes. I, the irony is that right now with Utah, he's got the problem where he's driving too far into traffic and making the passes too late. You know, so it's sort of this over this game within the game. But, yeah, it was sort of designed to kind of help you realize, you know, that this stuff just happens at highs in plain sight. And, you know, it's not because – Taylor Horton Tucker is more naturally gifted than I don't know who's like the Taylor Horton Tucker of the nineties. Like I don't know, spit out a name like uh, I mean Darren Hancock or or you know some backup point guard or it's probably yeah. a bad example. I don't know why I thought of Darren Hancock. Um, <laughs> you know, like John Battle or you know, if you want to go like a little bit more recent, you can go to like I don't know. Give me a team, I'll give you a player. D yeah, Brown. So- Seattle, uh, you name it, Nathan Billen, you know, or like a like a Dana Barros, or uh, sort of like scale back what Taylor Horton Tucker would have been back then. You look at the build, he probably would have been a guy, I mean, insane wingspan, maybe hits the glass, sort of has like, he a, has like a, a Vincent Askew. Nice. I think he has a body that this this again sort of ties into, I believe it's chapter 12, right towards the end of the book, that didn't really exist 20 years ago in the NBA, was a bit more underutilized. Uh, I think, you know, if you look at THT, he's he's referred to as a bowling ball, but he's a bowling ball with a seven foot two mm-hmm. wingspan. Uh, it's, it's just interesting how fundamentally this interpretation of space has influenced sort of every facet of the game from passing to shooting to defending to the way that players are built and i think that still for many years we're going to be playing catch up i think front offices are still playing catch up and you see it in some places i i think of memphis for example uh i remember back during the 2022 draft i was listening to sam Vecini's draft coverage and uh, they took david roddy at 26 mm-hmm. and he went oh my God, I had David Roddy in the 60s, right? And you look at him and he's built like this American football player, right? I think he grew up playing it at the college level or high school level. Mm -hmm. And then I read your chapter 12 about the power of thick thighs, which really gave me a bit of (laughs) self-confidence and core strength. And it made sense. I I had this David Roddy style epiphany of all shapes and sizes are sort of welcome in the NBA today. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting example because I think David Roddy has been disappointing and they probably wish they had D'Anthony Melton back. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's just, you know, there are a lot of different body types, a lot of different, you know, things that work. I think generally speaking, players are more freakish in terms of their length. And, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, just if you just think about it again, I think the, the term that's often used is like ground coverage your arms are longer you're covering more space uh but a lot of it is about you know how you use your arms not how you know it has to function and that's where i think some of the stuff that you're talking about comes in you know what good are long arms if every time someone tries to jump into you they fall they drop it just it doesn't really do anything um so yeah it's interesting memphis i think kind of in the last couple drafts, you look at this with with um, some of the players they have. They almost kind of took the like kind of more money ball esque. Like these players are going to be undervalued. These players who are yeah. not physically freakish in that way. So let's draft them. You see with Roddy. You see with Kenny Lofton. You see with uh, Xavier Kate Tillman. Yeah. You know, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, Desmond Bain is a really good example of that type of player that did work. You know, he was not maybe physically long, but boy, that dude can really move fast in tight spaces, you know? Yes. And then it becomes a question of how do you measure that? How do you test that? How do you judge the ability of a player to develop those skills, their body type, their work ethic? There's so much that goes into it, but yeah, I think it's, um, it's definitely forced a lot of front offices to look at physical attributes a lot differently. You know, I use the example of Luka Doncic and this idea that he's not athletic as a really good example of maybe rethinking what we consider athleticism. Now he's again, freakish there. You could find 15 people with Luka Doncic's body type and only one can make it work. Uh, But it is still something to kind of consider of like deceleration is athleticism, you know, 
decision making how do you activate your athleticism what i mean what how athleticism and skill are just so intertwined so yeah i think the the way the game is played paradoxically i think it I'm going on a little bit of a tangent here, but isn't it funny that the best player in the league right now is considered somebody who is like comically unathletic? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I know I've listened to Ben Taylor's podcast, Thinking Basketball, before, which I believe you went on a year ago to promote mm-hmm. Space Out. So hopefully, mm-hmm. a friend. Uh, yes, and he spoke about how we should be requantifying athleticism and how if you look at Nikola Jokic's hand eye coordination or I mean, he he is probably a perfect encapsulation of uh, being a spaced out native, probably the best interpreter of space that we have in the league today. Maybe ever. It, yes. Yeah, maybe ever. I, I think there's a really fun article to be written going around surveying NBA GM saying, if you had to redo the NBA combine, if you had to introduce 30 different tests for these guys to do, what would they be? Because I think they'd herald some really interesting results. I know that you touched on James Harden and Luca as like the 99th percentile decelerators. I know that Grant Williams, another sort of bowling ball, chunky guy, chunky dude. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is very professional analysis here. He, um, I can't remember the name of the scientific research lab that you referenced. P3 uh, is what it's called. There's actually, I believe, a book coming out on B3 tune by Henry Abbott that I'm really excited for uh they did i think they're a very important main character in this story but yeah no um yeah if you just had them take over with some of their tests i bet it would be a little more accurate than what we have i mean we've got stuff like how do you how high do you jump and mm-hmm. you know all that's like how you jump i mean from a standing position how often are sometimes you're doing that but a lot of times it's a, what i think is sort of obvious now is how you perform while you're moving is sort of more important than how you perform while you're stopping. There is sort of a lot of, when you talk about zero to 60 speed, you know, kind of acceleration, deceleration, what I think is kind of more important as the spatial dimensions have grown in practice. And as you're kind of making more, what I would call multi-step moves, whether it's offensive or defensive, it's sort of, how do you go, it's not really how you go from zero to 60 so much as how you go from 15 to 45 to 35 to 20 to 50, sort of the ability to kind of gear change in the middle of that, that I would love to see better athletic indicators for no question. And, you know, that's really what it, when you're coming off, you're trying to defend a ball screen or you're coming into a ball screen and you're trying to navigate, like, how do I, deal with this pick and roll coverage it is a lot of that kind of weaving and start and stop i mean that's what you're measuring can you can you go from can you stop and then go and then stop can go you're sort of taking someone on like kind of this this like you're right it's like a car running stick and you're just constantly shifting the gears how do we measure for that and then how do we measure for what one can do after they pick up their dribble you know a lot of those stuff like that uh and then yeah i think to your point, the like kind of hand, the non-leg forms of athleticism. I mean, Nikola Jokic's hands are so huge, and the way he kind of throws the ball like like a water polo player, which I think he was before, it allows him so much more flexibility between that time when he's making a decision in order to kind of make the right one, and it also improves his touch. I mean, his touch is the best thing about him. So. It's not about moving fast as much as sort of being able to make decisions while moving at some speed. Mm. I think I think we're sort of getting to the crux of of one of the other great things about the book here is we've been speaking for 20 minutes and we've covered the way that passing has changed, shooting has changed, defending has changed, decision making has changed, how we should be sort of revolutionizing the way that we scout players. I, I think one of the questions that i had for you is you would have had a lot of preconceived notions before you wrote the book right but in doing the research and speaking probably still do i mean you know yes yeah yeah but how has the process of writing the book changed the way you view the game is there anything that you look for now that you maybe didn't previously or is there anything from this season that jumps out to you as like that that would have gone in the book had i wrote it this year there are there are definitely players that would have been more prominently featured that are that are less prominently featured because of time or because you watch them more closely or mm-hmm. because they figure something out. Um, 
you know, there is, I think if you write this book a year from now, if I wrote the book a year later, Nikola Jokic would have been a much bigger, more prominent character. Shea Gilgis Alexander would have been a much more prominent character. Um, maybe James Harden would have been a less prominent character. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I think one of the things that I think has changed is just the degree to which everything that we're talking about is happening in motion. I, you know, there's so much more like strategically we've seen a, a bit of a rebounding of offensive rebounding. There's more cutting mm-hmm. to the basket. There's sort of more of those traditional elements kind of coming back in, in different forms. I think I might've tried to account for that a little bit more. Go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to say, I think it's kind of similar to sort of what we've seen in the NFL with the analytics revolution, where you work out the first wave of the analytics revolution is figuring out the best play to uh, try and stop Tom Brady, right? Like statistically they score, they gain this many yards per possession when we run this kind of defense. So Mm -hmm. we should be running that all the time. And I think that the NBA to an extent did that during the James Harden rocket years, you know, you sort of really pushed that, well, our most effective way of scoring is in isolation or is running a spread pick and roll. So you guys go and stand over there and mm-hmm. we're going to do this a hundred times a game. But I, I think the second wave, if you look at the NFL is, well, Tom Brady might score less points per possession on a certain defensive coverage. But if you give him that coverage throughout a game, it becomes less and less effective. So it's yeah, mixing exactly. in. Yes all these different elements. And I think what we're seeing in the NBA is we're moving away from that first level of the analytics revolution to the second level where ah, post-ups aren't important anymore. Uh, Mid-range shots aren't important. Let's not cut. Let's all stay where we should be to optimize spacing. It's essentially opening up the toolbox and making sure that you're using absolutely everything. And and for that reason, I think that the league is going to continue to shift over the next few years. No, I, that's a great way of putting it. I think if to answer your original question of sort of how did it change uh, how I watched, I, I think that this was sort of my inclination anyway, but I think mm-hmm. it was easier for me to kind of understand it in in context while working on the book is this is a game of deception and options. You know, this is a game that unlike football, you don't drop a play every time. It's a game that happens on the move. And so what you are ultimately trying to do as an offense is present as many threats and leverage them off each other. And as a defense present as many ways to short circuit the like kind of obvious and play them off each other. You make a great point. If you show Tom Brady, the same coverage, he's going to pick it apart. I think I had a have a better appreciation for just how much of the game is a cat and mouse kind of battle between lever- potential options that anyone can pursue and which one is really the one that I need to worry about at that moment, this sort of constant adjustment on the fly. And I think that's actually one reason why, I don't know if you saw what Adam Silver said on the JJ Reddick podcast this week, this idea of, well, I wish our game was covered more like kind of where we appreciated the complexity Mm -hmm. of the schemes. And, you know, I, to me, that is music to my ears, but I also think, it's not foot. There is obviously a lot of read and react within football plays, but generally speaking, in football, you're drawing up something and executing it over and over again. It's not helpful, I think, and be- makes it hard to appreciate basketball, and particularly the way the game is played now with so much pace and space and the game played in such high tempo. It's mm-hmm. hard to uh, be able to appreciate the complexity of on the fly decision making. Um, and to be able to convey it in a way, particularly in the in the short part of a broadcast where there's so few stoppages, how much is really going through the heads of these players at once, but more importantly, how they access the right information at the right time. It's so intuitive and so snap judgment that it's really hard to sort of analyze after the fact. So I think what... That's why I, I use the term space out native. What I think has really happened is that all of these players have such an understanding of all the different ways they can or cannot, all the different things they can and cannot do. And because they are able to see all the levers at once, able to see just sort of 
the almost the almost these alternate possibilities they're able to kind of play this sort of game of you think i'm doing this but i you i know you think i'm doing this but i think i know you're doing this over and over on top of each other and that's how all of these micro decisions results in the shots that we see and mm. i think i understand that a lot better by being able to really study kind of go back from outcomes out in order to study just kind of how do these players get to these shots get to these cuts get to these decisions and when that I think it's very difficult to convey in a way that is not, you know, literally like an hour talking through the decision-making tree of a single play. You can't cover it all. So Mm. I think that explains a lot of why maybe the NBA is not covered the way Adam Silver may not like is it's just, it's just like, it's just not that type of game. It's too difficult. It's It's not that type of game. Yeah, I and think, it's too difficult to explain in some ways. I think you have to have an appreciation yeah. for motion, the motion of the game in every decision, whether it's how well you shoot it, how quickly you deliver that pass, what option you're allowing. I mean, even like the concept of like you don't want to run drop coverage against like a great shooter. I mean, yeah. so, so much of it depends on little micro decisions like how quickly you're able to get over the screen, how much of a bother you're able to make. Are you like up to 15 feet, 17 feet, 19 feet that it really, because it happens all in such a quick amount of time, it's so much about the feeling that these players are getting when they're making their decision that it's, it's hard. It's very difficult to go back after the fact and analyze and say, well, this person should have been there at this time there's just a lot of psychological factors that i didn't fully appreciate before working on this book that i i think we need to be better at explaining but it's hard yeah and i i think that this sort of touches on another point from the book really nicely if you compare coverage of the nfl to what adam silver is proposing if you're showing a highlight from an nfl game it's because uh, now, I, I don't follow the NFL too closely, but it's because however many players on the pitch have performed their jobs pretty much perfectly and you've threaded the ball through an eye of a needle and everything has come off perfectly, right? But I think you speak in the book about how the NBA has traded perfect decisions or perfect form for good decisions made quicker. So yeah. when we go to analyse the NBA these days if you're trying to borrow from other sports and you're saying, well, Shay did this because he knew it was the perfect thing to do. And he got this buzzer beater because this was the perfect play. That's not actually what's happening. It's Shay made a split second decision and maybe he even missed a skip pass to the corner or something along those lines, Mm -hmm. but he reacted incredibly fast and he produced a good outcome. And it's about how many good outcomes you can produce and how quickly. And I, I think that's really yeah. really uh, sort of the crux of it yeah and and how many good outcomes can you make the defense think you're trying to produce when actually producing yeah. the one you want to produce yeah i think i mean the game is just so continuous that it's like kind of uh, it's not like football you know you don't stop and think or huddle up you know to mm-hmm. say we're going here and so because of that it's it's about taking limited information in a limited time and making the right decision in front of it. I I think that basketball wasn't as much like that in an era where everyone's walking the ball up the floor, where their space is much more compressed. It is a much more precise game in those situations. Like you often hear like people be like, Oh, why can't anyone throw an entry pass these days? Well, it's because you don't really sit in there and just go like this. I'm sorry. Is this on video? Yeah. Give me video and like throw the hand up and like, I'm just going to like place it perfectly right there. You know, you don't have as much of that has, you know, the 0.5 mentality that I talk about. in I think chapter, the shooting chapter that Mm -hmm. the Greg Popovich popularized the term. It just, it just changes the decision-making apparatus. And so motion becomes the currency. I'm describing this a little weirdly, but like to be able to move is Mm -hmm. what sort of drives a decision, how you're moving when, there is, there is, I mean, like Mike D'Antoni once said, ball finds energy. I mean, there is like something to that. You know, you know, it's a lot easier to decide and to tilt the defense and whatever if they aren't sure what's coming or they're thinking about the thing that just happened. 
rather than like sort of everyone's set up and you're just trying to place it perfectly. And that was, I think, a lesson that the Suns really taught, the D'Antoni Suns. And I think it's a very hard lesson for coaches because then you're sort of relinquishing a level of control and it's hard to figure out how to do that right. But that's yeah, I think happened in basketball. Yeah, uh, I think it's why when you see the best boxers go for a knockout, they're not trying to land a perfect punch. They're throwing combinations, right? It's just mm -hmm. breaking down the defensive barriers. And these these principles travel across sport. And I think it's interesting that you speak about coaches relinquishing control in some way. There's a lovely chapter in there that starts with Jeff Van Gundy and our best players random, I think, mm -hmm. in the Houston Rockets days. Mm -hmm. But the perfect encapsulation of that in the league today is what we've seen happen with Rick Carlisle and the Indiana Pacers. And Boy, giving... isn't that ironic? He's like known as like such a controlling coach. Well, this is the thing, right? And to trust Tyrese Halliburton, I checked just before we came on the podcast, they're averaging 103 possessions per game, playing with the highest pace in the league. It's, it's, it's just great to see that basically if you're not moving, you're dead in, in, today's nba right yeah i mean and i think the job of a coach and i think how rick carlisle marries maybe his sort of propensity for structure with yeah. the freedom that you need to provide a genius like Ty tyrese halliburton is they drill spacing very 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 you know carefully so it's like you can reduce it in a lot of ways to if this player is moving in this direction you go here you almost think of it as like hot spots on the court and checkpoints, um, mm. you know, so if it allows you to kind of exert a level of control over the players, this is, I think what I really mean by space that native, they understand on a level that I don't think we had to understand when the game was moving slower, how every house where they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to do is a relation is relation in relation to other players on the court. You know, hmm. when, I mean, if you just think about like kind of when do you cut to the basket? You know, at yep. what point is that most dangerous? What coaches are doing, are they really drilling those scenarios where it's like when this player kind of gets to this spot on the floor, or if you see this defender sort of start to sink there, that's when you cut. And if you don't get the ball, you're still opening someone else up. And the coaches that, that you talk about Indiana, what, what's amazing about Indiana is that the 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 plays they run are not particularly sophisticated in terms right. of design what it they do so well is again they understand the relationships and make decisions very drilled based on where players are going what's going to be interesting is like can you scout that as well like once once you kind of realize as an opponent well when Tyrese Halloran goes here he's very likely to very likely for Aaron Nesmith to be going here and for Buddy Heel to be coming around here. There are ways that you can kind of systematize that, but it, it's much more based on what the overall shape looks like. And if you reduce it to that level for players and say, your job is to just kind of keep this shape moving and make a decision at certain points in there, it becomes easy to create a system where everyone's moving really fast and it looks like chaos, but is actually incredibly well-organized. You know, and that's the transformation I think Rick Carla had to make where it was just what what I'm drilling now is not calling a play and you run the play. I'm drilling spacing. I'm drilling when this guy goes here, you're there. And that all those relationships. I I think it's interesting that when we speak about some of the teams that have been regarded as the best teams of all time in the past, I'm not going to touch on the Warriors here because they're actually in this era. But if you speak about the 86 Celtics, for example, they were sometimes described as having a hive mind of having this sort mm -hmm. of heightened understanding of where everyone is going to be. And then if you go back a few more years and you look at the Bill Walton Pacers, uh, Pacers, sorry, Blazers, Blazers. God. Blazers, Yes, yeah. Blazers. It was all about relationships and it was all about this sort of egalitarian system where there's an understanding of the cuts to make of the moves to make and just playing off each other. And I think more than ever, we're just seeing the league move towards five players working in synergy than mm -hmm. two players maybe working together. And that's not to put down your pick and roll chapter because that was fantastic as well. I think that what I took from the book on more of a macro level is you achieve a really 
lovely cadence from chapter to chapter. There's like a really nice rise and fall from it's like you really build tempo through I, a chapter. I tried. That's that's great to hear. Yes. I really I thought honestly what took the most time in the uh, writing process was deciding how to build the argument, how to sort of structure the chapters. You know, there, this is the type of topic that you could write 10 times as many words about, you know, yes. trying to figure out what belonged and what didn't, how to tell your story. You know, I'm an editor more so by trade. So these are the types of things I think a lot about. It was, it was very important to me to try to start from like kind of a wider lens kind of lean into sort of a little bit more of a tactical lens, but then go even deeper than the tactical to the micro of the players. It, it was, I'm glad you appreciate that because it was very much structured in that way. I sort of had like almost three subs, it were 12 chapters, but really they were almost in my head, like three subsections and, hmm. or yes, three subsections and kind of, it was important to me to sort of build, start from kind of macro and go, go deeper. So, um, I, I, my hope was that like as, as if you're only reading literally one book about basketball um and it was very hard to 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 leave off certain things or to yeah. you know not explain certain things as much as maybe you wanted to not make it too coachy to not also think a lot of people could probably say like hey why didn't you mention this historic team as much or why did you focus on and it was a lot of time was spent trying to figure out how to frame that Warriors Rockets part at the beginning, where like yeah. using them as sort of the two the two teams, the art for science of it. That was that was a risk because like you know maybe it wasn't really like that, but I just felt like it was a really useful way to sort of tell the story of this exponential change by kind of framing it as two combined forces coming together rather than something else so you know that was what took honestly more time than the writing once you kind of figured out like sort of what the narrative structure of the story was it it was a lot easier to be able to do each individual chapter so i'm glad you noticed that nice mission accomplished uh yeah just to just to sort of add for any listeners i think just to to delve slightly deeper it's at, at the start of every chapter or within every chapter mike will give you a scenario that if you follow the nba you will remember or you will know. So for the pick and roll chapter, we start with Stockton and Malone. We speak about, as you've just mentioned there, the Rockets and the Warriors rivalry. There's always just this seemingly there's an anecdote. And for some players, it makes a lot of sense. When you do the dribbling chapter, there's a heavy focus on Allen Iverson. And I think, you know, mm -hmm. from an outside perspective, you might think, well, of course that makes sense. You know, he's the best dribbler of all time or the most, whatever you want to say. But then, as we've touched on a couple of times, Joe Ingalls is your guy for the shooting chapter. You do a fantastic job of making really big ideas accessible through things that we already sort of understand, which is great. So that's another reason to to buy this book. Mike, before we get out of here, because I'm conscious of time, I want to ask you two more questions. I want to ask you, where do you think the league is going? Because that, that was what I had sort of initially thought when I messaged you about the podcast mm -hmm. and two, uh, I obviously want to hear why the people should buy this book inside for Christmas. Where is the league going? I mean, it's, uh, I, I, there's a funny thing. I, I've, have you ever heard of something called the paradox of expertise? No, I haven't. It's this idea that the worst projectors are the people who are most deepest into the subject because they can't help, but think only in terms of, what they know as a way to project the future. The truth is that the future is something that's often comes from an outside source that you just never anticipate. Um, so I, I don't know if I'm like a great projector of the future is all I'm trying to say. What I think is, is happening and will continue to happen is that this game will become even more of a full court game. It will become even less about, are you on offense or defense and even more about up and down, even more about how you position players even further out on the court, even less of a half court game. Um, I think we're going to see, I, I don't know if that manifests itself in higher score. My guess it probably will, whatever you want to call higher pace, but I think so much more of a strategy that you build is going to be built around how does my offense and how does my spatial positioning of players within the offense and whether I have them crash or the glass or not, or get back, that is going to very much be dictated 
more by what happens next and change of possessions. There's going to be so much more of the game that I think is going to be in this sort of style of random kind of open play, a lot like how soccer is where, you know, there's the continuous flow over this open time. There will be periods where the game slows down, but it's much more, I think of a, how do I align my five players across the whole field in, in soccer? It's the 11 players. Um, I think we're seeing a little bit of that with sort of the rise and zone, some of this full court pressing, um, the rake and take off the glass. Um, I think the more of the crashing of offensive rebounding is a little way of sort of this idea, whole idea of a possession game is such a new concept that I think will continue to rise. Like kind of, how do we kind of just change the spatial dimensions of the floor, force more of their players to be in places that make it harder to fast break versus easier. I think it will become a lot more of like offense and defense will be thought in tandem um, Mm. with each other. You don't really, you know, there's a guy, I I don't remember if I actually quoted him in the book or not. Bob Kloppenberg used to be the Sonics uh, assistant coach under George Carl. He pioneered their sort of trapping full court press look. And he would often say that like people would ask him, why do you work on defense so much and you never work on offense? And he said, well, I am working on offense because our defense, when they create a turnover, is enabling our offense. You know, that's that's yeah. my way of working on offense. I think um, you're going to see think, that that concept more. Yeah, I think if we're going to relate that back to football, uh, Jurgen Klopp, the Liverpool manager, that's famously exactly. said yes. in football that the greatest playmaker is press and winning the ball back yeah the yes the counter press it's winning the ball back it's creating that transition moment so all of these these ideas flow throughout all sport which i think is going to be fascinating the one thing that i wanted to mention just as my sort of not crackpot theory but i think the game uh you you mentioned ground coverage a little bit earlier in the podcast Mm -hmm. i i look at some of the players that are due to come in to the league and i think about the ways that players are going to be taught now ground coverage is going to be at a premium, uh, incredibly important. And I think that we could just see the league get bigger and bigger because Wemby and Chet have come in this year. In 2024, the top five prospects currently, um, like at the top of the draft class, I think there might be one point guard, but they're all sort of six, eight or bigger. They all can handle the ball. Adam Saar is going to come, or Alex Saar rather, is going to come in next year. And he's been spoken about a guy that's seven one that can defend one through five. And when yeah, we say one yeah. through five, we talk about that sort of Superman style Kevin Garnett guarding on the right. perimeter, something that yeah. Evan Mobley has done as well. Yeah, and it's not even about whether you guard, but it's just like when you spread your arms and access your length, you're just covering more space. Yeah, I, I can't take credit for the ground coverage thing. It's something that uh, Sam Vicini, who I, I work a lot with at the athletic talks about a lot with prospects. So yeah, I mean, at a certain point though, human beings can't grow any longer or taller. So, I mean, I wonder how that's going to go. I mean, what are we going to have like eight foot people with 11 foot wingspans in 20 years? You know, it's sort of <laughs> like, we'll like, we'll I feel like Victor Wembanyama is kind of the, like, have we flown too close to the sun with this guy <laughs> moment, you know, with just this yeah. freakishly long athletic person. Uh, but yeah, I agree. In general, yes, size is just becoming more important, but not height, size, horizontal size. Yeah, even I think LeBron coached at Peach Jam this year and he was stood next to 15, 16 year olds and they were the same size as him. So it's a case of what are we feeding them these days? <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the league changes over the next few years. Uh, lots of ramifications. I think that we could probably speak about this for hours, Mike, but in summation it's a year since the book's come out i assume that it's done phenomenally well from reading yeah for Uh, those that didn't buy it last christmas give us the pitch because i can certainly think of a few notes as to why this should be in someone's stocking this year i mean the very simple pitch is you double the width of the floor it changes the game if you feel like the game is hard for you to follow if you feel like it's moving too fast if you feel like Mm -hmm. It's not the game you grew up with. You're kind of wondering, like, why are they scoring so many points? How do I make sense of all this? You know, this is the book that's sort of a, the goal is to help you rethink exactly what you're seeing. Um, so it's really for if you're a basketball fan uh, and you want to feel like you can relate a little bit more to what you're seeing on the screen. This is the book for you to understand just sort of how we got to this point where the game that 
is here is not the game that you maybe grew up with. Um, and so that's really the simple pitch, you know, is if you like basketball, but you're not quite sure what's happening right now or what to think of it, or you, know, you find it to be maybe a lot to follow or people are doing things that you thought, Oh my God, I, I would never have done that, you know, or that they shouldn't be doing this. Like what, why are they doing it? It's very much geared, I think, towards the uh, like kind of. I called it my my uncle was very much like this, so I would always think of him when I was writing the book. The sort of, you know, not old school basketball fan, but maybe the mm. uh, the fan who like just likes basketball but feels like this era is confusing. Um, yeah. So it's a lot. I, I think it's geared to them, and so that's how I would pitch it. It's just you know, how do we get here? What what am I? how do I understand this, this thing that's on my TV that is kind of like the thing that I grew up loving, but it's a little different than I thought. And I, I want to be able to, to love it again. That's what it's really I, about. I'd say that for, for the people that listen to this podcast that think, well, I do understand what's going on. You know, I follow the coverage. I there's, there's fantastic coverage out there these days, particularly on the athletic, which I believe Mike, you're uh, mm-hmm. very prominently a part of read the book because you will nod along at parts and you'll go yeah i thought that yeah that's that's what i'm seeing there are also bits where you will learn about um morse code experiments in 1899 or or stuff (laughs) mike just picked wonderful wonderful examples in terms of how to demonstrate his points i love that 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 chapter took forever so i'm glad you liked it that was definitely the chapter that took the longest mike thank you so much for coming on the podcast for those that were convinced and want to check out mike's book it's going to be in the description down below you can find mike's work on the athletic you can follow him on twitter or x whatever we're calling it these days that will also be in the link in the description mike thank you so much for coming on man i hope you've had fun i've had a great time thank you so much for the kind words and thanks for having me absolutely absolutely anytime that is another episode of the drop step in the books i hope you enjoyed listening and we'll be back next week or maybe we'll have a double upload we'll see we'll see but thanks for listening tune in again next time